Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Molly Quinn, and I represent the appellant Juanita Whiteshield. We're asking the court to vacate Ms. Whiteshield's conviction for assault with a dangerous weapon and remand for a new trial or an amendment of the written judgment to conform to the oral pronouncement of the restitution award. I'll start with the mistrial issue. The district court erred in denying Ms. Whiteshield's motion for a mistrial after a government witness testified three times that she said she was on probation at the time of the alleged assault. This government witness was Carson Smith. She testified about a conversation that took place between Ms. Whiteshield, the witness Ms. Smith, and the alleged victim at a later date at some point after the alleged assault. And Smith was allowed to testify three times that Ms. Whiteshield said that she was on probation at the time of the alleged assault. This evidence was irrelevant and prejudicial. It suggested that Ms. Whiteshield was a person who engaged in criminal behavior. It suggested that she was a person who had a criminal record. It suggested that she was a person who had a propensity to commit criminal acts. Now, counsel, yes. this testimony was stricken by the judge, right? It was. And the judge gave the instruction says the jury is not to consider it for any purpose, right? He did. Oh, is it, doesn't that cure any problem here? Your Honor, here it does not. And the reason is that the district court's curative instruction was insufficient to cure the error under the facts of this case. It was given only after the witness was allowed to testify to this fact three times, only after the Ms. Whiteshield's defense counsel's contemporaneous objection was overruled by the district court in the presence of the jury. It was only after the government was How many times was the objection overruled? Three times or, or, or was there a continued objection? Go ahead. The objection was overruled one time. Mm -hmm. And our, our position is that it was sufficiently preserved mm -hmm. having received a definitive ruling. But there was one objection in front right, of the jury. Thank you. And the curative instruction was given only after the government was permitted to finish its direct examination. And under these circumstances, this is not the type of fleeting comment that can be cured by a curative or limiting instruction by the district court. In other words, there's an overwhelming probability that on these facts, given the number of times the witness said it, the timing of the overruling of the objection and the striking of the testimony, there's an overwhelming probability that the jury was unable to follow this curative instruction. But, uh, counsel, I thought, didn't the, um, was there testimony from the victim about the assault with the, with the crowbar? There, there was testimony about the victim. Okay, and, and um, did a special agent testify that the appellant admitted striking the victim with the bar? Yes. And the bar was introduced into evidence? It was. The appellant identified the bar uh, when it was still in the bed of the truck? She did. So, I mean, that's a, quite a bit of evidence. Does it really, even if that, even if that was uh, an error, what, where's the prejudice? The prejudice comes from, it's true that the general outline of events is largely undisputed by the parties, but this evidence that Ms. Whiteshield was on probation went to two key issues before the jury that don't go to the questions Your Honor asked, and those are specifically, did Ms. Whiteshield act in self-defense, and did she act with intent to cause bodily harm, which is an element of the assault with a dangerous weapon as charged by the government in this case. And there is admittedly competing evidence on the issue of self-defense. Ms. Whiteshield, in her statements to the agent, repeatedly said that the alleged victim here assaulted her first and she was defending herself. 
and the alleged victim and the Ms. Smith herself had a different story. But these are important questions. These questions of Ms. Whiteshield's intent and whether she acted in self-defense. And we know they're important because both were emphasized in the defense closing argument and because the jury actually sent a note asking a question about that specific intent element. So we know that these are important issues. And then to get to your question, the probation evidence went directly to these issues. And it's because this evidence, again, suggested that Ms. Whiteshield was a person who had a criminal history, a criminal record, a propensity to commit criminal acts. And then that suggested that she was more likely to be the aggressor in an incident than to have acted in self-defense. And it suggested that she was more likely to be a person who acted with intent to cause bodily harm rather than by accident or with some lesser mens rea. So because this evidence, these three references to Ms. Whiteshield being on probation at the time of the alleged assault, went directly to what the key issues actually were for the jury in this case, the district court abused its discretion in denying the motion for a mistrial and the curative instruction was not sufficient. And any prejudice that remained after that curative instruction is enough to warrant a new trial in this case. If there are no more questions on that issue, I will shift to the second issue. The written judgment is inconsistent with the district court's oral pronouncement of the restitution award in two ways. First, it does not reflect the waiver of the interest requirement. And second, it is the written judgment is $90 higher than the restitution award that was announced at the sentencing hearing. It's undisputed that the oral pronouncement of the restitution award at the sentencing hearing was $11,893.01 and waiver of the interest requirement. The written judgment, again, is inconsistent. It has a total restitution award of $11,983.01, which is $90 higher, and the box to waive interest is unchecked. And I believe it's undisputed that at least the interest, the written judgment should be amended to reflect the interest, the waiver of the interest requirement. But the written judgment should be amended to reflect the oral pronouncement of the restitution award itself as well. The pronouncement of the restitution award was unambiguous. There was nothing imprecise about it. The district court gave that amount. There's nothing imprecise about that. The district court in giving that amount didn't refer to anything else in the record that would make it confusing or ambiguous or imprecise. The district court did not refer, for example, to the restitution request as set out in the PSR, as set out in the victim impact statement, did not refer to the government's request for restitution, which was additionally $5 off of the, the restitution award. And it didn't, the district court's oral pronouncement did not award, for example, X amount to the one entity, entity, Y amount to the other entity, which those added up to a different amount than the total restitution award. So there's nothing imprecise or ambiguous about what the district court awarded at sentencing. And so this is not a case where we can look at the entire record, look at the PSR, try to figure out what the judge maybe meant instead of what he said, because there is, there's nothing to clarify here. The oral pronouncement was unambiguous and clear. The written judgment said something else. What number did you ask for? What number did the other side ask for? Our side did not address restitution. You never mentioned one at all, a number at all? That's correct. Okay. What did the, what did the other side really ask for? They asked for... I, have, I don't have that right in front of me at the moment, but they asked for $5 less than the restitution award yes, in the judgment. The government did refer to and said, I think that's broken out in the PSR. Can you, 
I've got to ask this respectfully. Our cases generally say the oral pronouncement uh, uh, controls, mm -hmm. right? Yes, we got do. a lot of those cases. Yes. But we also have this line of imprecise language cases. Yes. Can you reconcile them? Yes. And I think Tell it goes how. back. Thank you. Some of the things <laughs> that I was already talking about. In those cases, there is something about what the district court said that created some sort of ambiguity. And here, there's nothing there. Here, what the district court said was this $11,893.01 amount, and there's nothing internally ambiguous about that. And like I said, the district court didn't, it would have been ambiguous maybe if the district court had said this number as requested or as reflected in the PSR, this number as reflected in the victim impact statement, this number as requested by the government in this hearing, or... What did the government request? Did, did I get that from you? You said $5 less. No, I'm $5 sorry. That's the $5 yes. less. Go ahead. Yes. Proceed. I can get that for no, the No, no. Proceed. I remember it then. Go ahead. And so I think that makes this case distinguishable from the other cases where there is some sort of ambiguity. The Buck case is the key case talked about by the government in this context. And there, there is definitely an internal ambiguity in what the, gov or in what the district court said in the oral pronouncement. There, the government requested a concurrent sentence. The district court judge said, I'm requesting the government's recommendation for a consecutive sentence. And then the judgment came out, and it says, this will be a consecutive sentence. Anything I said to the contrary was erroneous. We don't have any of that here. We don't have anything where the district court judge is referring back, or anything in the statement itself that doesn't make sense. There is no non-existent recommendation to reject, which was present in that Buck case. And there is no kind of clarification at any point by the district court that this was a misstatement. And sort of, I guess, to follow up on Judge Benton's question, really there was no dispute about the dollars here. So it's, it's not like the district court was having to resolve some kind of disagreement between the parties or which victim, in, which victim gets what or any kind of amount for any particular request? That's correct. And I did want to address the, gov the government's argument that plain error review should apply here. And I just wanted to clarify that from our perspective, the error that arose arose after the judgment was issued. It's not an error that arose in the sentencing hearing. I think that the government's position would be that there was an error in what the district court said out loud. Our position is, again, this is an error that arose after the judgment. And I believe that Rule 51, which says if there's no opportunity to object, then the party is not held to plain error. Because you had no, the right. defendant had no objection right. to the dollar amount that was that's, stated. <clears throat> that's exactly right. That right. if there was a mistake at the sentencing hearing, it was on the other party mm -hmm. to object in the moment and request clarification or within 14 days under Rule 35A. And those things didn't happen here. And, and even if plain error review did apply, we would believe that we can prevail under that standard. Unless there are further questions now, if I may reserve. You may. Thank you. <clears throat> Ms. Poole. Good morning again. May it please the court, <clears throat> Ms. Quinn, Jennifer Poole representing the United States. Given the brief and fleeting comments about the defendant's probationary status made by one witness in the midst of a three-day trial after which the district court uh, provided a curative instructive, it cannot be said that uh, the district court abused its discretion in refusing to grant a new trial in this case. Uh, Ms. Quinn uh, recited correctly what happened here both in her brief 
and uh, in argument this morning. Uh, but I think it's important to keep in mind how brief these comments were, and therefore it's helpful to give some context of Ms. Smith's testimony. Ms. Smith testified at length about the assault on the victim. That was the overwhelming uh, majority of her testimony. She testified about the assault that happened outside uh, the liquor store in town, and then as she and the defendant chased the victim, uh, she talked about the second assault that happened on the side of the road. The defendant makes much to do about the fact that the witness testified three times about the, the uh, defendant's being on probation. But it's important to note that she wouldn't have testified three times about that but for the defendant's objection. Now, to be clear, I am not critical of the defendant objecting to that testimony here. It was improper. But it nonetheless explains why she said it three times. She was very focused on not talking about where this conversation happened. This conversation happened in jail. And the judge instructed her, don't talk about that. And she, and she didn't talk about that. He also in, instructed her not to talk about the fact that she believed that the defendant was under the influence of methamphetamine. She didn't talk about that. So he also said, don't talk about the probation. She did let that slip, however, when the prosecutor asked her, tell me what the defendant said to you when you had occasion to encounter her. At that point, she said, the defendant told me, it was part of the statement, the defendant told me she was on probation, that she effed up, and that she grabbed the pole. Before she could finish that statement, however, the defendant objected. But over the defendant's objection, the district court allowed her to finish that statement. So unfortunately, she didn't just pick up where she dropped off and said, the defendant messed up and uh, I picked up, and, and she said she picked up the pole. And fortunately, she said the defendant was on probation and so forth. In an effort to move on, the prosecutor said, is, is this the sum of the statement? And she said yes, and she repeated it. So mm -hmm. this took place in the matter of moments. As I said, most of the testimony was about the assault <clears throat> on the victim on the day in question. And there was just few moments that were dedicated uh, to this conversation that happened at the jail, although there was no mention of, of the jail. The court, this court, has said repeatedly that the district court in these situations is in the best position to determine the prejudicial effect of, um, of improper testimony. And in this case, uh, the judge handled the situation in a textbook fashion. He immediately excused the jury and they had a conversation about what was said. At that point, uh, he denied the defendant's motion for a mistrial because he determined this was not the sort of evidence that would lead one to believe that she picked up a pole and hit somebody. And this is a district court judge that I would submit has over 100 trials under his belt. He's been on the federal bench for over 21, 22 years. So he's a very experienced trial judge. And he determined that, listen, this is, he determined that in the midst of this entire trial that this was not so problematic that we can't remedy it with a curative instruction. And that's exactly what he did. He brought the jury back in. He struck the testimony. He admonished the jury not to consider uh, evidence of the defendant being on probation. Now, in preparing for this argument, I read through the court's uh, case law on this issue, and I was struck at how 
minor these comments were compared to other cases where this court has upheld the district court's denial of a, of a motion for a new trial. Uh, there were cases uh, where <laughs> witnesses have tossed about, talked about homicide investigations, talked about seeing mugshots of the defendants. In those cases, uh, a remedial instruction was given, and this court upheld the district court's denial of a, of a motion for a new trial. Uh, the most analogous case that I could find was probably the U.S. v. Fetters case. That was a case that was authored by you, Judge Benton. <laughs> and in that case, there were three separate witnesses that testified about the defendant's criminal history. The first witness uh, testified that the last time that he saw the defendant was in lockup. The second witness was a booking agent who said that he had a lot of experience with the defendant. And the third witness was a nar narcotics agent that made reference to some previous criminal activity. But despite all of that testimony, which I would argue is certainly more problematic than what's at issue in this case, despite that fact, uh, this court determined that all of the comments that were made by the defendants about the criminal, defendant's criminal history were fleeting and remedied uh, by the court. What about the argument that it really goes to the self-defense, that, that it's... There, that the that the concern is rather narrow that it goes to the credibility of her her position on why she did what she did as opposed to whether this all happened well i would submit to you there was almost no evidence of self-defense in this case your honor in fact at one point the defense attorney asks for a self-defense instruction and the judge says hold on i'm not going to provide that until i see some evidence of it at which point the prosecutor says i don't object so the the issue was resolved but to your point, the only evidence of the self-defense was a recording by the defendant. Her, um, there were two statements. The defendant didn't testify at trial. The defendant's statements came in. The first statement, she denied uh, the assault. She denied uh, that there was even that she that she even used a crowbar. She denied that six times. Nothing. This assault didn't didn't happen the way that um, that the victim said it did. Um, in the second time she was interviewed, which I think was about an hour and a half after the first interview, she, she said, yep, I did pick up this crowbar and I did um, hit this victim with it. Although she claims, of course, that it was a, a mutual combat of sorts. But overwhelming evidence that this defendant had the necessary intent uh, to commit bodily harm in this case. It's hard to say that you don't intend to commit bodily harm when you pick up a crowbar and you hit somebody with it with force four or five times after punching that victim. Uh, in this case, uh, that evidence consisted of uh, the law, uh, law enforcement found this victim on the road all bloodied. Uh, a traveler, two, I think, individuals had called 911 and said there's this individual sitting on the road. Uh, law enforcement arrives on the scene, and his testimony was she was covered in blood from the top of her head to the tip of her toes. That was his testimony. Meanwhile, the defendant has no defensive wounds on her. Uh, the victim's testimony, of course, that she was assaulted uh, by, the, by the defendant on the side of the road with the crowbar. And then, of course, Carson Smith's testimony, which I think was the most impactful in this case, because I believe she was the only one who wasn't under any influence at the time. But she testified in specific detail about what happened in this case. She said that the, that the defendant was just full of rage when she witnessed the victim with her husband outside the liquor store. She went over to the vehicle. She punched her. Uh, they they took off in the vehicle. They they were um, they followed the defendant and Miss Chase together. So this Miss Miss 
Smith, Ms. sorry, Smith, I'm getting the names confused. Smith doesn't know the victim, doesn't know the defendant that well either, but she testified that they got in this vehicle, they followed uh, the victim and the defendant's husband, after which the defendant dragged or uh, removed the victim from the vehicle, hit her, uh, and she even said that uh, this victim was doing nothing. She said, I yelled at her. I pleaded with her to stand up for herself, and she didn't. At that point, she said the defendant got frustrated, went to the truck of the, of the, went to the, uh, the bed of the truck, grabbed the crowbar, and started hitting the victim with force. And when the prosecutor asked her, what was the victim doing at this time? And she said the victim was doing nothing. She didn't try to stop it. The only thing she did was put her arms up in some sort of self-defense action or, or in an effort to protect herself. So again, the court is in the best position uh, to measure the Count, effect. Counsel, what was the case you mentioned a moment ago? Um, our, our opinion. Um, the Fetters case? Fetters? Yes. Is that in your brief? I believe it is. If it's, if it's not, it was written by Judge Benton. I, I, <laughs> I do recall that. Is it with an F? Yes. It's, I don't see it in the index to any of the briefs. Go ahead. You could send us a 28-J letter with it. Certainly. Sure. I apologize. I, I no. didn't what's draft the, the brief. What's the citation? Do you have the citation? I have it right over that, here. No, that's okay. If you'll okay. just follow up with the... Certainly. My apologies. I would suggest that you follow up with the letter as mentioned by Judge Bitten. Will do. Thank you. So, again, when viewed in the context of this trial, this very experienced uh, trial judge determined that this was the type of statement that was not so problematic that couldn't be cured with a, uh, an instruction. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, to the extent that there was some residual prejudice that remained, it's our position that um, it was harmless error based upon the overwhelming evidence of the defendant's guilt, as I've uh, previously uh, outlined for the court. Uh, as to the second issue raised by defendant regarding restitution, it's clear that what is reflected in the transcript today uh, is erroneous for one of two reasons. Either the judge misspoke when he uh, ordered restitution, the specific amount, or alternatively, alternatively because, uh, because the court reporter transposed the numbers uh, when she recorded the proceedings. And any Has that, anyone checked to, to see whether the, is the audio, whether it, whether it matches? No, it's, 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 it's... Is there a recording? Typically, there is not a recording. Yeah. It's possible there, there may be, but typically in, this, in our district, there is not. But in any event, it is, it's a clear mistake. Indeed, as Ms. Quinn has recognized, the court has said when there's a conflict between the oral pronouncement and a written judgment that the oral pronouncement uh, typically controls. But this court has also said uh, that where, as it is here, the written sentence is consistent with the court's intent during the hearing that this court may treat the written judgment as operative. So here, I, I think it, there can be no question what the court's intent was. There were um, two claims for restitution. Uh, there was a claim t uh, from the Department of, uh, I think it was Human Services, uh, for $1,078, and there was a second claim for $10,983 for a total of $11,983. And that's the PSR and not objected to by anybody, right? That is right. 
That's, and that was what was reflected in the written judgment. And is uh, that the amount that you asked for? Was that, or was that $5 off? What, what did the government ask for? It, I have to apologize. My recollection was that, that there was no specific amount, but, but I, I can't be certain. What, I did you say the, what did you say the North Dakota DHS asked for? The North Dakota Department of Human Services requested $1,078. And, and the other one? Was for uh, CHS in the amount of $10,983. Well, believe. that does. Hmm. I believe. I, no, it's your brief says 10, 904. Oh, and okay. I think that's what the PSR says, too. Yes, that's right. And the cents make an extra dollar, almost exactly. Yep. What are the odds of that? 39 plus 62. In any event, the addition in the, P in the PSIR is correct. And the addition that's set forth in uh, the, well, not set forth, but that you arrive at in the written judgment is correct. What the, the, what the court said, and it's clear he either transposed the numbers or the court reporter transposed the numbers, there's no, there's no connection to the facts in this case. There's no way you can get to that number. Now, I would agree that when you say that number, uh, it's clear, right? When I say the car is red, I'm, it's very clear I'm saying the car is red when, in fact, it isn't. That's why you look at the intent. Uh, you look at the, the entire uh, the, the pronouncement of sentence, and you look at the entire sentencing hearing, and you can look at the PSIR, which was not objected to by either party. But again, in any event, it was an error. It was a clear error that was not preserved by But how, how do we know it was an error? I mean, I think that, that we don't really have the context of ambiguity. It's a number that wasn't referenced. The district court didn't reference right. the, the PSR, didn't reference anyone's argument. And I guess, you know, it seems like everybody thinks something happened, juxtaposition of a number, yeah. something. But I don't, I, I wonder about the next case, right? Well, that was just a mistake. How are we going to know when $90 is a mistake or $4,000 is a mistake or a juxtaposition? I, I'm kind of, I'm trying to figure out how we know this one is an error, and other than the fact that there's this sort of juxtaposition of numbers that maybe would explain it, but there's nothing else here on this record that would say um, that the judge was confused or referencing something something erroneously. Well, it's it's a unique situation, right? Because it it, it, may, it, it makes sense when the numbers are, are are not transposed here, right? So I don't think you're going to see this situation. Well, when you see when you see this situation, you're going to look at the sentencing. You're going to look at the transcript. You're going to look at the PSI. You're going to look at the hearing. And you're going to say, "Okay, what happened?" There's no way you get to the number that the district court, or the, you know, there's no way you get to the number that's reflected in the transcript of the proceedings. There's no explanation for it. So when there's no explanation for it, then you start looking. So, so is that the that's the rule? If there's no, I, I'm just trying to figure out what because our rule is if it's the oral pronouncement. Is different than the written judgment. You go with the oral pronouncement unless there's some kind of ambiguity and you need some sort of clarification. And I kind of feel like we're not in that world. And I'm just trying to figure out a rule that isn't just, oh, well, we know this one is a mistake. I, I just don't know what rule, how, how we would write that up other than, you know, it's an error and we just all called it that. Well, I think uh, in the, the Mays decision, I think it was the Mays decision and the Buck decision, uh, both. And let me see. Uh, but in, there, um, the court said very, very clearly that 
if the written sentence is consistent with what the, what, what the intent of the judge. And I don't, think, I don't think you can look at this and say that the judge intended that $90, the $90 difference because, again, there's no way you get to that fact. So if it's clear what the judge intended to do, you can treat that written sentence as operative. The court has said that in Mays, and that was as recent as 2021. But in, again, in any event, it's an unpreserved error that uh, was, uh, was not preserved, Your Honors. If, well, I see that my time has expired. Uh, so if there are no further questions, I will conclude by requesting that the district court, excuse me, that I, I will conclude by requesting that this court um, affirm the district court's denial of the, um, the mistrial and uh, affirm the district court's uh, written pronouncement or written judgment uh, imposing uh, restitution in the amount set forth in the PSIR. I would agree, however, that um, the limited remand, limited on remand the for the purpose of um, checking the appropriate box, which would waive rest, which would waive interest on the restitution, because again, that was Thank very you. clear. That's what the court intended. Thank you, Counsel. Ms. Quinn. Thank you. I'd like to start by kind of clarifying some of the matters relating to the restitution issue. I do now have the numbers in front of me. Uh, the government's request, at least as reflected in the transcript on this, on page 18 is $11,978.01. So it's exactly five bucks off. Exactly. Yeah. Five bucks. To the penny. Five dollars off the written judgment. Right, sure. The request five the bucks to the penny. Go ahead. Yes. Um, and so the the government's request orally at sentencing as reflected in the transcript is that $11,978.01, the district court's oral pronouncement, $11,893.01, and the written judgment, $11,983.01. And it's true the written matches the PSR. It does. Thank you. And Judge Kelly, I wanted to go to your question about whether this might have been an error in the transcription itself. And I, I don't have anything on the record for this, but I can tell the court that we did have a staff member from our office reach out to the court reporter. We did not listen to the recording ourselves, but we did request that the court reporter listen and ensure that we weren't kind of repeating a Scrivener's error. But that's all, all I have on that. I did not do that in full candor for the government's request on page 18. So we did not listen yeah. to the recording ourselves. We did make an effort to ask the court reporter to double check that. And then I'd like to shift to the mistrial issue. And I, on the point about Carson Smith only said this three times because of the defense objection, I do disagree with that. There was only, as we talked about earlier, one defense objection. And then she said it two more times after that. And I don't think this witness repeating this statement over and over again at, after a defense objection is the fault of the defendant. And this court has said that we look at the context in which the error occurs when evaluating the motion for mistrial. And that, that should not cut against Ms. Whiteshield in this matter. And then I did want to briefly address the Fetters case addressed in Ms. Poole's argument. And I think one key distinction, distinction from my notes on that case is that in that case, there was either no defense objection to that testimony or the district court, as characterized in the opinion, immediately rectified the error and struck that testimony. And some of the differences that we have here, again, are this one witness said this three times. Defense objection is overruled in front of the jury. 
and there is no curative instruction until after there's a break and the jury is brought back in. So that would be a distinction from that case and, and some of the others where there isn't necessarily this repeated statement of the prejudicial statement and then an overruling of the objection and the curative instruction only comes Do you later. have the citation to the Fetters case? I, I believe I did cite it in the opening brief. You cited it? Yes, okay. for the, the proposition of fleeting comments. And if it's, I, I believe that is the same case. And I wanted to go to the discussion about harmless error. This error, the denial of the motion for mistrial, was not harmless. Um, there was some discussion about self-defense and potential evidence against Ms. Whiteshield's um, claim of self-defense. And I, I'd like to talk about that this evidence also went to the other issue of specific intent under assault with a dangerous weapon. And we know that that was a concern for the jury because they sent a note to the judge asking to talk about it. They sent a note saying, we want to know what's the difference between this greater offense, assault with a dangerous weapon, and the lesser included offense, simple assault, and then they put intent to do bodily harm. So we know that that is an important question for the jury in this case, because they told us that with the note. In this evidence, for the same reasons it's prejudicial and the same reasons that it goes to self-defense, that it goes to Ms. White, it suggests that she's a person with a criminal propensity or propensity to commit criminal acts or more likely to have acted with a bad intent that evidence was prejudicial on that important fact as well. We would ask the court reverse and remand for a new trial or amendment of the written judgment to conform to the oral pronouncement. Thank you. Thank you both for your arguments. Case number 23-1192 is submitted for decision by the court. Ms. Keefe. The last case, <coughs> excuse me. The last case for argument, 231627, United States v. Alexander Cornell. Mr. Glazer.